Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and I'm on vacation. This week's episode gives a pretty unsubtle hint about where I'm going. Guess correctly, and I'll send you a pack of Smarty Pants stickers and a collection of David Lehman's Best American Poetry series. So shoot me an email with your mailing address to podcast at theamericanscholar.org, also spelled out in the show notes. And if you haven't done so already, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Especially if you listen on Spotify, please rate us. We were pretty late to the party, and I don't think we have any ratings. So please rate us. It helps others find the show, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, and with no further ado, here's your hint. This week, I'm talking to Marie Arana, an award-winning Peruvian-American writer whose latest book, Silver, Sword, and Stone, Three Crucibles in the Latin American Story, manages to explain a whole continent without being a thousand pages long, even though it covers about a thousand years of history. Before I picked up her book, I thought that in order to really get how Argentina and Guatemala and Mexico are all connected, I'd have to read a book for every country. Probably I should still do that. But Arana's book makes the compelling case that there are really three driving forces that can help you understand the entire region. Exploitation and extraction, or silver. Violence and force, or the sword. And religion, or stone. Of course, you can't really pull violence, exploitation, and religion entirely apart from one another, in the same way that you can't really extract silver from stones without force. And that's the point. As Richard Moe writes in our review of the book, the interspersing of those themes and times can make her book seem like a literary version of three-dimensional chess. Except that at some point, chess comes to an end. In Latin America, the themes are constantly recurring, again and again and again. To hammer that point home, Arana weaves together the stories of three contemporary Latin Americans with a millennium of history to show how you can't explain one without the other, and ultimately, you can't really explain the rest of the world without Latin America. Because, like Africa, it was a continent exploited by everyone else for its people and its products. Maria Rana joins us in the studio to talk about silver, sword, and stone. Thanks so much for coming in, Marie. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Stephanie. Thank you. How did you even start to look at the, to tease out this picture? Because when I try to think about, you know, how do you explain what's going on in Latin America? You know, how do you explain why Chile is racked by protests or why there was a coup in Bolivia? You have to untangle so many strands. You do. You do. Um, I wanted to do this because, you know, and and um, I don't want to project um, a, a completely negative picture of Latin America because this is this is a region I love. This is a region my family is from. Uh, this is a region that is full of, of culture and life and love and warmth and music and uh, all sorts of excellence in, in, in so many ways. Um, but what I'm talking about is the very, the very things that move populations and that have um, actually affected the history in, in very impactful ways. And what I was trying to get at after I finished uh, writing the biography of Simon Bolivar, which was in itself, you know, it took up so much geography. It went all the way from the Caribbean down to Bolivia, 300 years at least of history. And I thought, well, you know, this is a good broad story. And then I sat back after I finished this, that book and I said, well, I, I want to go broader still. And I want to um, 
to explain something about uh, the character of the people because there, there, there is a history defines our characters, does it not? I mean, we have um, in the United States of America a certain a certain character, and sometimes we don't understand it until we go to a foreign place and we look back. We say, okay, yes, this is how Americans are, and they're not like the French, and they're not like the Italians. They're they're like that. Um, and I felt that way about Latin Americans, that, you know, they are not the French, they are not the Spanish, they are not the United States of Americans. They are of, uh, a very discreet group of people that have been shaped by this history. And so I wanted to get at those things. Um, and to tell that story, I had to fuse history with journalism because you, you want to show how that history lives in people today. Uh, which is, uh, which was, um, I think, the most difficult part of doing uh, doing this book because it it's you could be accused of being neither here nor there. You're not a historian. You're not a journalist. What are you doing here? But you're you're doing a very very broad landscape, alternating between the historical state and the present state. Really hit home this like the cyclical nature mm-hmm. of it, and mm-hmm. I, I wonder how did you find people who were so emblematic of these three things and why settle on three you know if if writing about a whole continent is perhaps reductive writing about three people to exemplify that continent might be perceived as reductive might be perceived as reductive absolutely absolutely and but you know you one needs to to see them as a representative um and you know when you're when you're telling a broad collective history i think there's nothing that brings you, brings it all to earth as when you when you put it in the perspective of one person and you put it in the perspective of one life and um, I think in all three of these cases, Leonor, who is a miner in uh, up seventeen thousand five hundred feet into the air in the Andes, who is essentially living a life that her ancestors might have lived five hundred years ago, um, is is representative, is really emblematic. Um, and Carlos, being uh, having been brutalized in the War of Angola when he was sent there from Cuba, and then being thrust onto the American shores as you know, uh, Marielitos and the Mariel Boatlift, a life shaped by violence, and that continued to be violent. No surprise. And then the the priest uh, Javier, who, who came from from Spain at the age of seventeen, thinking he was going to uh, evangelize, you know, people just the way that five hundred years ago his other others had gone to evangelize, and realized that he needed to pay back, not to evangelize, but to sort of give in in the sense that priests of the Catholic Church were really meant to give, but never did. Right. Yeah, I mean, and it's tough, too, because Latin America, like Africa in a lot of ways, is written about as an entire continent Mm -hmm. in a way that people don't really do for North America or for Europe or even Asia, even though that, too, is colonized. Um, Why do you think that is? Why do you think Latin America is subject to these grand myths? Well, it's the global south for sure. Latin America is different in the sense that um, it was actually for so many centuries providing um, the wealth of the planet. Um, what the what the conquistadors actually established was this tremendous uh, commerce 
of, of minerals and silver and gold and, and copper and tin that actually went out into the world and created global capitalism. Global capitalism did not exist before the Latin American colonies were formed. And what is so special about Latin America is um, also that nowhere else on earth, you look at the global south, you look at Africa or India or anywhere else in the global south, was there intermarriage to the degree? The racial mix in Latin America is very, very special. The conquistadors, you know, the, all the Iberians, the Portuguese and the Spanish, um, married. They conjugated with, with the, the people, with the indigenous and with the slaves. So they created a whole mestizo race, you know, which is very, very different from the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about what you said earlier with the, you know, the without the wealth or the gold of Latin America, global capitalism wouldn't exist. Because in so many ways, South America did provide the engine for that. And mm -hmm. the relationship with the other commodities that fueled it is mm -hmm. also fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And w one feeds the other in a way. And uh, it's so interesting. You go to places that are thriving like Uruguay. Um, or Costa Rica, and they will say, well, you know, we've the, the reason Uruguay is doing so well is because they've never had any anything to offer, you know, <laughs> no minerals, no agriculture, you know, and basically it's now a, a technological marvel, but it's it's not anything that anybody needs wants to excavate, you know. So the the um, commodities in Latin America have always been shipped out. I mean, we've, Latin America's always been bled of its wealth. It's sugar, indigo, cotton, tobacco, you know, all of these things that have been chocolate that have been reaped really from from the soils of, of Latin America and sent away. And um, that has been the relationship of Latin America to the world. It's never quite gotten out of it. And still, you know, even when they thrust the Spanish off their shores and sent them you know, staggering back to Spain, what happened then is it became the colony of everywhere else, of uh, the United States, of Canada, now of China. It's sort of an endless cycle. And the reason is because the, uh, the people who are in power, the elite, very often, um, and, and the governments just uh, sell it away, give it away, because it's a, it's, it's a way to keep themselves rich and keep the, uh, the hierarchy the way that it is. Um, it's a classic case of, you know, an extractive society. Yeah, well, and it's an extractive society where the class struggle has never been, I think, more emphasized yeah. just because of the sheer quantity of stuff that's being pulled from the earth or grown on top of it. Right. It's remarkable to me that, you know, we don't often realize and we don't stop to think. I think people are doing more of this thinking, but uh, we don't stop to think where things come from. You know, the, the, the gold that's sold in the counters of Tiffany and Cartier come from the illegal mines in the Amazon and the Andes. And the, the people are living as if they, the way that their ancestor lived 500 years ago. It's uh, very primitive situations, particularly because uh, illegal mining is now the big earner. I mean, it actually out-earns the legal mining uh, throughout Latin America. Yeah, it's not just the illegal mining sites, right? Even perfectly legal mining sites, what was the statistic, like more than 70, sometimes even 80-ish more percent of the wealth is is taken by these multinational companies and not actually kept in 
the country itself. That's correct. That is correct. And also what they leave behind. And mm-hmm. what they leave behind mm-hmm. is, uh, and they're the, uh, the big mine out of um, uh, Cajamarca in Peru, which was absolutely stopped for years because the communities were finding that you know the, the mercury and the cyanide poisoning in the water was just uh, untenable. There was proof and evidence that this was happening. And the the corporation just had to shut down for a while. Um, so what they leave behind is also just as important as the the ravaging of what they take out. Right. Yeah, I mean, you talk about um, in the end of your book how until we understand the ghosts in the machine, the victims of our collective amnesia, we cannot hope to understand the region as it is now. And I think that's really evocative. And it, especially when you look at something like gold and silver, so many of the patterns are the same as they were a thousand years ago. But there are some differences. So the resistance you're talking about to that mine in Peru didn't happen when the Spanish came in and conquered the Inca. No, of course it couldn't happen. Yeah. There, there were no labor laws. There were no right. there was there were no environmental protection uh, efforts at all. So it was it was just rampant mm-hmm. exploitation, um, and uh, the, the, to the loss of of great many lives. When you think of the mercury mines throughout mm-hmm. Latin America, mercury mines are of course lethal, and and um, one one doesn't live long uh, doing that kind of mining. And that mining was enforced. I mean, people were enslaved and taken great distances to do that. So it's a very, very um, dark story, yeah. uh, dark history. Do those ghosts still linger, do you think? I think so. I think there is this sense that Latin America gives itself away. I think it prostitutes itself very often and is made to prostitute itself really by the by leaders and, um, you know, the, the dictators, la mano dura, what we call the, the iron hand that often comes in and, and enforces this, but very often just by the elite, you know, who, who happen to own everything and, 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 and have the money and the wherewithal. The good news is that there's this rising middle class. It's a very fragile middle class that hasn't been there before. Um, but in the last, uh, certainly in my lifetime, there has been this this uh, rising middle class um, with very high expectations now of, of, you know, now that they've moved this far, that they can move more. But there's always this sense, you know, that the sky is going to fall, mm-hmm. that uh, either there was going to be a rebellion, there's going to be a terrorist um, movement, there's going to be a, a clampdown by the military or um, some sort of dictatorial rule. And of course, we see that happening now. Uh, this before I even wrote the book, that cycle that was going on and has gone on historically has burst onto the scene today. I mean, just what's been going on in Bolivia, uh, what's been going on in Chile, mm-hmm. and one place after another, Mexico, you know, the, the, uh, these, these cycles come back. Um, and it's really not until I think Latin Americans, and I count myself among them, I'm, I'm dual citizenship and, and I'm very loyal to my birth country, Peru, um, until we realize that we have to look these things in the face and we have to address the corruption and address the, the, the classism and uh, the, the rank poverty that uh, we subject people to in order to create this labor force mm-hmm. um, to keep things going and keep uh, you know, the commerce moving out. So what do you think that the, this fragile middle class, as you put it, what do you think that they have to offer 
differently from the other like pools of people who have tried to struggle against corruption, have tried to struggle against dictatorship or fascism in the, in the past? Well, I think when you, you when you accomplish a climb of that kind, and and I know I have I have many friends and many acquaintances who who are menial laborers uh, or domestic or or um, people who who work with their hands and. They have managed to raise children who have gone on to graduate from college and get master's degrees, which is an astonishing feat um, in Latin America. The, the actual new credence in education and the fact that that can move you to a completely new stratum of life is this new enlightenment that is, has happened among the poor. This is in many ways why um, evangelism, evangelical churches are making great strides in Latin America because, you know, the Catholic Church has always said, you know, blessed are the poor for they will inherit the earth, but not in this lifetime, you know, mm. someday, but not in this lifetime. There's always this sense that they will, they, you know, they, that, that they're the good people, but they're, that we're not going to make them less poor. The evangelical church does. It says, you know, we can we can make you prosper and you can be born again completely and you can, you know, shake the corruption, stop lying, stop drinking, stop womanizing and make yourself a better person. This is very appealing in in Brazil now, 20% of uh, the Brazilians are count themselves as evangelicals. This has a great appeal, and I think it has a great appeal to um, to the rising middle class that thinks, well, you know, I'm I'm going to I'm going to be richer. I'm going to make my children richer, and I'm going to do it by being a better person. And this is a this is kind of a sea change in Latin America that's happening. The Catholic Church is very worried that it is losing as many people as it has. Yeah, well, and religion is one of the crucibles in your title. Stone, the stone. And I call it stone because in the indigenous world, um, the highest expression of the Earth Mother, which was really the, the goddess nature that has made us all, the most concentrated expression of that was hard stone. And um, stone was worshipped. Uh, the all the 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 worshipped objects of the temples were made of stone. And then, of course, when the Spanish conquistadors came, they slapped their stone on the temples that uh, the stone temples of the indigenous. And um, stone really became a an, an expression in the Catholic way of you know we now own your spirit, and you can see. The big cathedral in Mexico is built right on top of the Adoratorium of Montezuma. And they took the the rocks and built their church from the rocks of the temple. The same thing, exactly the same, you know, many thousands of miles away in, in Cusco, in Peru. The Spanish took the stone from the, uh, from the Temple of Gold and built their cathedral right on top of it. Yeah, I mean, and it is so pervasive in that conquest. Mm -hmm. You know, it was often used as the grounds for why the Spanish were investigating what was going on in South America, you know. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Even though it was quickly abandoned, of course. The conquistadors quickly learned that um, in order to keep the crown believing in the whole conquest and colonization of the Americas, they had to take priests with them because this was not a search for gold if you could persuade people that you had a priest by your side. So the priests were really walking with a conquest and were very much on the side of power. 
We've talked now directly about two of your three crucibles, silver and stone. And the third one, the sword, really runs beneath those two, violence. So how how do you even begin to tell the story of how violence created Latin America and permeates the other stories you tell? Well, you have to begin with the fact that in order to be an extractive society, you have to lord over a population. Uh, you have to lord over a, a, a vast labor force, and you have to keep that labor force down. Um, and you do that by violent means, and that was always the way, uh, was by violent means. The, the, the amount of, of um, just sort of reckless um, loss of life in, in the course of, of, of building the wealth that w- was eventually shipped out um, and and made you know made Manila rich and made um, made uh, Peking rich and made you know the, the Europe rich was really done on the backs of the uh, indigenous and eventually on the backs of slave labor because what happened of course with this uh, this tremendous genocide um, that kind of you know. M- it's more than decimation, just absolute wreckage of, of a population, they eventually had to start shipping in slaves from Africa. And violence became, you know, part of the culture because then, of course, when you when you have these the, the dictatorial rules that come up and spring up, um, that is, you rule uh, with la mano dura, with the iron hand, with violence. And when you rebel, you rebel with violence. And so uh, we have this uh, history of organized violence. It's not random violence that you might find somebody, you know, shooting up a a grocery store or, or, you know, London Bridge uh, sort of knifing out of the blue. This is organized violence in which you have a, uh, a drug cartel doing the doing the violence or you have a um, a rebel group or a terrorist group or the or the military dictatorship and so it's a very different kind of violence and um, to, to the we lived with it to the extent that 10 of the most murderous cities on earth are all in Latin America right you know I think it's really apparent when you look back to point the finger at countries like Spain or, you know, financiers in England bankrolling all of these dictatorships. But far too infrequently, I think, especially today when we have this influx of immigrants coming up from Latin America, do we think about the role of the United States in it? And I was really kind of shocked to see how far back it went. You know, I think um, Operation Condor, thankfully, is relatively well known, Mm -hmm. but it goes back to Taft. Oh, yes. And Jefferson. Right. Um, The quotes are astonishing. So Taft said, the whole hemisphere will be ours, in fact, as by virtue of our superiority of race. It already is ours morally, which is basically the same thing Jefferson said, which was we should snatch South America piece by piece. Yes, absolutely. That was was always the, the, the intent was, you know, eventually it's going to be ours. You read the literature of the founders, and they were incredibly dismissive. John Adams was, you know, very, very <laughs> critical, um, and and found them not only immoral but you know lazy and and worthless, really. And that sort of attitude, you know, went on to the to the extent that the U.S. freely went down to change governments or to occupy, because of course. 
uh, it either owned, had gas interests or it had copper interests or it had sugar interests. Whatever those interests were, they needed to be protected. And they were protected by violent means. So the U.S. had a very black hand in that history as well. How would you sketch out the relationship between these forces that you're writing about and our current influx of immigration? Well, it's the chickens have come home to roost sort of thing, to use a cliché. Central America, particularly Honduras and and Guatemala, Nicaragua, all of these uh, countries that have been directly affected by uh, American intervention. Uh, in many, many ways. And um, they have, uh, they are now suffering really appalling societal violence. And it is, to my mind, it is incumbent on us to think about our own history down there and why that has created an influx. It's not just, you know, people pouring over the border. There's a lot of history to it. And people forget as well that these lands, you know, New Mexico and, and Texas, and, and these were these were originally Hispanic lands. They became part of the U.S. only in the mid-1800s. People at the border say, you know, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us, in a sense, because these were lands. They have, The families were split up when, when that border Order was created. Um, so they, these are people who are tied by blood. It's a long history. It needs to be understood. We're remarkably, I think, in the United States of America, adamantly ignorant about Latin America. That has always disturbed me, which is why that's what I'm constantly writing about. We barely scratched the surface of the Latin American story. So for more, you'll have to check out Maria Rana's book, Silver, Sword, and Stone. We'll be back next week. Till then... Take care and stay sharp.